This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello, this is Iona Young, and I welcome you to Unlearn and Rewild where we explore radical ideas relating to Earth Renewal. Today we're speaking with Andrew Harvey. Andrew is founder-director of the Institute of Sacred Activism, an international organization focused on inviting concerned people to take up the challenge of our contemporary global crises by becoming inspired, effective, and practical agents of institutional and systemic change in order to create peace and sustainability. Sacred activism is a transforming force of compassion and action that is born of a fusion of deep spiritual knowledge, courage, love, and passion with wise radical action to preserve and heal the planet and its inhabitants. Andrew was born in South India in 1952, where he lived until he was nine years old. It is this early period that he credits with shaping his sense of the inner unity of all religions and providing him with a permanent and inspiring vision of a world infused with the sacred. He left India to attend private school in England and entered Oxford University in 1970 with a scholarship to study history. At the age of 21, he became the youngest person ever to be awarded a fellowship to All Souls College, England's highest academic honor. By 1977, Harvey had become disillusioned with life at Oxford and returned to his native India, where a series of mystical experiences initiated his spiritual journey. Over the last 40 years, he has plunged into different mystical traditions to learn their practices, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Sufism. He has synthesized these mystical explorations with a deep environmental and humanitarian ethic in the practice of sacred activism, and he is the author of over 30 books. Hello, Andrew. Hello. I'm delighted to be speaking with you and to share your work with our audience. Just to lay some groundwork, can you begin by addressing why activism alone is not enough and why religion and spirituality alone are not enough to truly confront the current state of Earth? I think the deepest answer to that is that the nature of the divine is both being and becoming. It's both timeless peace and pure awareness and passionate energy that is endlessly creative. And if you and I are made in the image of the divine, as all the mystical traditions tell us, then our duty, our responsibility, our destiny, our ecstasy 
is to marry the great transcendent peace with the wild, holy, sacred passion in sacred action, divinely inspired action, creative action at the core of our lives. What this marriage makes possible is the birth of a new kind of human being, someone who is illumined by divine awareness, whose mind is transformed, whose heart is absolutely naked and open, and whose whole life is spent as a prayer to transform the planet, to help the planet be the birthing ground of a new way of being and doing everything. So sacred activism is the only real response to the great evolutionary challenge that we are being faced with. Because sacred activism, that is the fusion of the two noblest passions of the human soul, the passion for God, the passion for unity with reality, and the passion for justice. So the two greatest passions of mystic and activist are fused in sacred activism and both the narcissism of the mystic that is an obsession with the light and transcendence and mystical experience that narcissism is healed by the mystic being united with the activist and the narcissism of the activist that is an obsession with doing with endless doing and being the agent of righteous change and is very often a narcissism that is obsessed with heroism and the hero ideal and burnout, that narcissism is healed by mystic knowledge, mystic truth, mystic passion. And out of this fusion comes this great healing of the two most sensitive kinds of people in our world, but two kinds of people that are clearly not being able in the current situation to effect the depth of transformation that's needed. It's clear the spiritual movement is totally incapable. The new age, or as a friend of mine calls it, the new cage movement, is totally incapable of addressing the exploding horrors of the real extinction crisis that we're in. So it's creating a kind of refugee la-la land for people who don't want to do the authentic work of facing where we are, let alone reacting to it. And it's very dangerous. And it's also clear that the activists, motivated though they are by deep, righteous indignation and motivated by very noble intentions, it's clear that they too aren't mobilizing the world because there's something too judgmental in the way they're doing it, and there's something that in their ferocity that intimidates and doesn't invite and enchant people to change. But both the mystic refugeeism and the activist ferocity can be healed by the marriage of the mystic peace and passion with the activist hunger for justice and a new kind of being created. And it's to this evolutionary new being, which I call the divine human, that all my work is dedicated because I'm experiencing this birth in myself and in many, many different kinds of people. And I feel at this time in my life, I know that this birth is the next stage potentially open to humanity. And the only way 
that we can survive, let alone thrive, the crisis that we've created out of our insanity of separation from truth and love. So that would be one way of answering that beautiful question. Wonderful. And can you speak more about what self-transcendence means and what embodiment means within your framework of sacred activism? Self-transcendence can only come from being made aware that you are already realized, that you are already not two with the one, that your consciousness is the consciousness. And that experience, which is the essential experience in awakening, initiates you into your immortality, the divine self that is the wellspring of the whole creation of all the universes and of the mind itself that creates your understanding of yourself as a person. Without that recognition, you will never be able to connect with the divine peace and be saturated by it in every cell. So life will terrify you at various levels without that recognition because it's only in the end when you know that your essential you is the I am of the universe and so was never born and can never die. It's only when you know that, not just read it or believe it, but know that, that you can truly stand in your full divine dignity and turn up in great alertness and awareness and peace and joy in all the different situations, sometimes amazing, sometimes tragic, that unfold. Embodiment is the exact opposite of the experience of being essentially like consciousness. Because if that experience of being essentially like consciousness is taken by grace to its flowering goal, what you experience is the whole of the universe being a manifestation of that light consciousness. So all of matter being congealed light, crystallized light energy. So that leads to an experience of your own being, your own personhood, your own body as a holy temple, as a vibrating holy temple of crystallized light energy. And that leads to a totally different understanding of the infinite sacredness of every single thing that is, because every single thing that is, is child of the father-mother, child of this great marriage between light and matter, that is the dance of the universe. And that matter is just as sacred as the light. Once the light has opened your eyes, to the light's dance in and as matter, heaven and earth become one living experience and body and soul become 
married so you live consciously as an ensouled body and an embodied soul having a unified experience with the whole of reality as the endlessly flowering dance of the light and how this deeply relates to sacred activism is this the situation that we're going into is infinitely serious and everything depends upon how we meet it with the fullest and most embodied consciousness because we're truly in danger of destroying ourselves so what's required is the bringing together in ourselves of the deepest wisdom of all of the traditions of the journey into God, the deepest mother wisdom of being one with the whole of this gorgeous reality and the deepest father wisdom of being one with the one light, bring them together so that we can be as fully embodied as possible and as fully fearless in our transcendent origin as possible so that we can truly come forward in this vast, explosive, paralyzing, horrific crisis which is going on on every level of our civilization so that we can truly come forward and give our lives calmly and joyfully as prayers of sacred activism as prayers of sacred transformatory action. So that would be how I would link the experience of divine consciousness that is self-transcendence to the living and gorgeous process of embodiment that is the discovery of matter as the dance of light consciousness so that you enter life and enter your body and enter the world with rapture and with profound joy and bringing together the rapture and the passion and the joy with the great peace that births you into a strength which enables you to turn up as a midwife love warrior of the new this divine human being that's able to really experience the depths of what sacred activism means in the core of your being but also the depths of what's possible when groups of people unified in that way, inspired in that way, energized in that way, strengthened in that way, turn up together to pool their sacred embodied energies in radical service to radical action that can radically transform our situation. Andrew, you have just the most beautiful, flawless way of speaking about such challenging subjects and going Wait, thank you so much yeah of course going back to when you were speaking about the new age it's interesting because it's part of the american ethos to be happy and we're constantly self-conscious of our personal fulfillment so this bliss seeking mentality is partially programmed but also partially a reaction to a dreary wage slave culture that devours life force and serves up hollow and predictable entertainment. So it can seem that following one's bliss is the only enjoyable escape out of this system. Yet you write about the importance of spiritual rigor and stages of darkness in order to feel true joy. So I'm wondering if you could expand on this. What a 
wonderful and profound question. I think there's a tremendous distinction, permanent distinction, really, between happiness and joy. Happiness is a wonderful grace, but it comes and goes. The kind of joy that I am speaking of, that the Upanishads are speaking of, that Jesus is speaking of, that Ramakrishna is living, that Rumi is celebrating, that kind of joy, the Ananda, is the permanent nature of reality. And connecting with that permanent nature, that permanent tender, sublime, peaceful ecstasy at the core of reality is awakening, is enlightenment. And living it as a constant secret presence is what gives you the strength to go through the storms of suffering that you need to go through to be purified and emptied enough so that the great joy that is the ultimate nature of the Godhead, that joy that is announced in the Upanishads as the ultimate reality when in the Taittiriya Upanishad, Bhrigu Varuni's son says, Pram, Ananda, all things are born. In Ananda, all things are sustained. And to Ananda, all things return. That great joy, that fundamental birthing of the divine in every part of you arrives when you are empty and the role of suffering, the role of the different storms of suffering is to purify and empty you enough so that the joy that is your essential nature can then be revealed in you and poured into you because at last you've created a container that is empty enough to hold its power. And that's why the New Age is a kind of frightening disaster because the New Age's vision of happiness is an entirely narcissistic one. It's your happiness, which the New Age tells us is dependent on what we can manifest, our desires, our loves that we need, our Malibu mansions, our cars. So what the New Age is, is a celebration of all of those narcissistic forces of the unhealed separate ego that are creating the crisis to begin with. So it cannot be a source of healing of this crisis, of transformation of this crisis. The real path has nothing whatever to do with narcissism. It is, in fact, the crucifixion of narcissism. And narcissism is crucified on the authentic mystical path through two important powers. The first power is shadow work, because if you truly look at your own personal shadow, if you look at the collective shadow of an insane culture dedicated to exploiting and destroying the earth, if you look at the shadow of a crisis that is actually threatening us with extinction while we're in total denial, disbelief, and dread, if you look at that, you're going to 
go through a death experience of your narcissism because you're going to suddenly realize that you're living in a very endangered situation in your own psyche, in a very endangered situation in your own culture and in the world, and that solutions are few and shrinking as the crisis grows. So that kind of shadow work is exactly what the New Age doesn't want to do, but that kind of shadow work is actually essential to the depths of the embodiment process because that's what hollows you out, destroys the narcissism of the false self so that the divine can pour grace into you and reveal you to yourself as both far more limited and far more powerful than you could ever imagine. The second great power of annihilation of narcissism is the power of revelation on the past because the more your you disappears, the more the great I am that you truly are appears. The more you concentrate on the silence and on the deep passion of the sacred heart and on marrying them, the more the whole universe reveals itself as your essential self. The whole of reality reveals itself as your essential self. But that revelation no longer has your ego in it because you cannot have that revelation as long as you're in a fantasy of separation and identification with the very small person that houses this vast being that you truly are. That revelation, and this is the other side of the second power, is always accompanied by suffering because every new stage of revealing to you of your own illusion creates a tremendous disorder in the you that you were before you had that revelation. So the light coming in creates a necessary new process of purification. And that necessarily involves sometimes very extreme forms of suffering until you come to the great, great test of the real path, which is not the test of how you embrace your glory, but the test of dying into life through allowing the whole process of the dark night to unfold in you, the whole process of being personally torn apart by the divine so that you can die into you, you can die into life. That's the great test on the path, and that's the doorway into embodied divine life, but it's a doorway you cannot get through as you, because going through that door, you're cut to pieces by a thousand knives in the dark night. You have to die to get to the next room. And without this process being deeply at the heart of the whole evolutionary enterprise at the moment, 
was simply not going to be able to embody the divine in sufficient strength. So without summoning these two powers of shadow work and revelation that leads to suffering and enduring the different stages of that suffering so that the revelation can be installed, without those two working together, the craziness of human narcissism will not be dissolved and the fullness of what we can be cannot arrive. Wow. Well, I think about the dying of the self and the ego and this shattering of the conditioned identity that sometimes we cling so intensely to. And I'm wondering if we choose to dedicate ourselves to this type of transformation, is it important to seek the guidance of a teacher or a guru to help focus us with the spiritual rigor? And secondly, with so many individuals claiming spiritual superiority, how can we navigate trusting our inner intelligence while balancing wisdom from others while we go through this transformation? Wonderful questions. For me, and I can only speak personally, I think it's essential for people to claim, first of all, and most of all, and always, their direct connection with the divine, to really say at the depths of themselves, I am responsible for turning up in a direct, naked, authentic relationship with what is already here, all around me and in me. When you claim the direct connection in that way, and it is a moment of tremendous and awesome power in your life, then you see very clearly the distinction between guru and teacher. For me, and again I'm speaking personally, the guru tradition is over. What are needed on the earth are humble, experienced, mentor teachers who are living the divine transformation, this process of being born into the divine human, and who share what they are learning in a spirit of very great equality with everybody. This is the kind of teacher that I've been privileged myself to have because this is the teacher that I found in Father Bede Griffiths who was a very great Christian mystic and who was in the end of his life experiencing the direct divine birth and who shared his knowledge not as an omnipotent, omniscient, authoritarian figure but as a beloved speaking to other beloveds as someone awestruck by what he was discovering, privileged to give his awareness to others and infinitely respectful and tender and humble towards the others to whom he was giving himself. That's a new kind of teacher. And there aren't many of them in the current ghastly spiritual circus. So you truly have to practice discernment, radical discernment. First came your direct connection. 
and then pray to be guided to those sources of wisdom, books and paintings and music and people and encounters that you truly need to flower and be patient and be discerning and you will come across through grace one of those rare, humble, experienced evolutionary pioneers who are not claiming to be totally enlightened because they know that there is no such thing, that there is only an endless expansion in this great adventure and who are approaching how they are doing what they're doing with very great knowledge of their own shadow, very great ethical responsibility, and an absolute refusal of any kind of manipulative power over you. If, I would say, when you do find someone like that, really allow the relationship to be as beautiful and as empowering as possible. But never give up your own sense of your own divinity. Realize that one of the greatest dangers that you can be put in when you discover someone who amazes you by the beauty of their nature is that you can project onto them what I call your golden shadow. They become the most beautiful thing in the world, holy, wonderful, compassionate, and in that admiration, there is a kind of corruption because you are transmitting and projecting onto them and adoring in them the qualities that are actually latent in yourself, need to be taken back into yourself and need to be evolved in yourself through your willingness to go through whatever you have to go through to evolve them completely. And if you can be responsible in all of these ways, then you can have an exquisite and transfiguring relationship with another being that takes you deeper into the great mystery of your own being and gives you the tools that you need to continue to evolve in your own unique way. Because one of the things that I've learned on this journey is that this great evolutionary leap that we're being summoned to, this great marriage of transcendence and eminence that we're being called to, this great work of birthing the divine human through really fusing the deepest spirituality with a radical commitment to action, this great evolutionary birth, in other words, that is trying to take place, is taking place, can only take place if we do claim our complete responsibility for the flowering of our own unique self. And how did you relate to what I was saying? How did it strike you? Well, it was relieving that we have this divine connection within ourselves with really no need for a guru or the guru culture, because that can lead to a lot of insecurities. To also take responsibility for our projections and to really listen and watch ourselves as we go through this process is very powerful to take that much responsibility for ourselves and not expect the guru to expect the government to work themselves out for us. And, that's the fantasy. Mm -hmm. That's the fantasy that prevents us from really turning up to be born into this new dimension. 
Because if we continue to give our powers away to others and don't take responsibility for evolving them, then we never discover how vast and rich and powerful and potent they can be when they're transformed by grace. So we never become the Christ. We go on loving the Christ and admiring the Christ and worshipping the Christ, but we never actually live this essence of the message of the Christ, which isn't to adore the Christ, it is to become your own unique Christ. And you can substitute for Christ any of the great names for God. We're here to become drops, living embodied drops of the great infinite light ocean and to know when we are those embodied living diamond drops that the whole ocean is through its own mysterious grace present within us. The madness of this is beyond any language, even the language of Rumi to describe, were both poor passing facts and living eternal selves, one with the self. And that's the experience that we're being called to. And from that experience, from that dynamic experience, we can, with the help of grace, transform even this appalling situation into the birthing ground of a new humanity. Sacred activism isn't only for mystics who want to birth the divine human and know that it's possible. It's actually for everyone, it is the way in which you become fully human. You become fully human by opening to other human beings, to the creation, to animals, to the world, blessing the world, and truly seeing what's wrong and what's distorted in you and in the world, and truly committing yourself to do the work inner and outer to write it. That's how you become a human being. And everyone who is human is being invited to become fully human. And as humans, we're all complicit in the destruction by participating in the consumer economic system. But can we all be guilty? And I'm wondering, do you believe in divine justice? And do you believe a societal collapse can awaken some sort of divine justice that will benefit innocent life and reverse the gross impunity that society has arranged for itself? Absolutely. One of the glories of Islamic mysticism is that it describes God as having fundamentally two aspects. There are so many aspects, of course, but these are the two organizing aspects the first is Jamal, the great tenderness, the great peace, the great all-embracing compassion and love, the mother side. And the second is Jalal, it's just a change of the letter, and that's the side of fury, of justice, of wrath, of karmic payment. And you have to face that side of the divine because the divine is law as well as love, and love expresses itself through these laws which have to be known and respected and fundamentally and finally obeyed. Otherwise, 
there will be unbelievably scary, terrifying and destructive consequences. All of the great prophets of humanity and all of the great sages of humanity have spoken very strongly about this. The Buddha, after all, said in the fire sermon, the world is burning in the fires of ignorance, greed, and craving. And the world is now literally burning in those fires. It's always been spiritually burning in those fires, but now it's literally burning in those fires. So this recognition of the seriousness of moral and ethical choice of conscience is absolutely essential. And it can be born through a recognition of just how it's being degraded on almost every level in our world. And it's very painful, but you have to be able to stand that pain so that it can teach you truth, the truth of what you need to obey and embody. Going back to something you mentioned earlier, the crisis of the body, the way this culture treats the earth body is strikingly parallel to how many of us treat our individual bodies. And I'm wondering, how does this crisis affect romantic love and sexuality? And what are some practices for repair? I think the fundamental way in which our sexuality is affected is that it's absolutely polluted by body hatred and sex shame and rejection of matter and humiliation in general and terribly particular ways of the sacred feminine. And that until you know, however consciously you may feel you are joyfully installed in your sexuality until you know that you still carry the violation of the feminine, the hatred of matter, the degradation of matter, the appalling cruelty of the patriarchal religious traditions to women and to homosexuals and to the body, until you know that you carry that within yourself, how can you ever undergo the journey that you will need to undergo to transmute those shadows into deep compassion for all beings struggling with those shadows and into knowledge that can help you liberate yourself from those shadows so that the divine love, the divine truth, the divine beauty can reveal itself as living in your body as your consciously now sacred body. And it's only when you know that your body is sacred that you know that its desires rising from that sacred body must also be sacred. And it's only when you know that that you can undergo the spiritual disciplines to make those desires, to help those desires through grace become adoration and worship and deep, deep sacred celebration of life in the other, of the divine beauty in the other through impassioned lovemaking that is 
irradiated by the experience in your sacred body of the sacred peace and the sacred passion that you are one with. So the most fundamental activity that you need to do, first of all, is to face the shadow that your sexuality has, the shadow of rejection, the shadow of denial, the shadow of perversion, because so often the traumas of denial and sex hatred drive us into bizarre fantasies that overcompensate. You've got to look at all of that also. So that's the shadow work that's essential. And secondly, you've really invited your challenge to take up sacred physical practices that can initiate you into the holiness of your body. So when you come to your bedchamber, when you face your tantric beloved, you are facing your tantric beloved in the context of a living physical discipline that you're pursuing, such as yoga in its true sacred sense, or sacred dance in its true sacred sense, or reiki, or Tai Chi or Qigong, these beautiful ancient traditions that can help you experience your body as a living, breathing, crystallized light temple. Mm. And I might add that the collective shadow around sexuality is very extensive too. In a patriarchal society that has largely forgotten how to honor the divine feminine, the divine mother, and instead belittles her. I was wondering if you could take us through a visualization of what our world might look like in the absence of those patriarchal power structures. Do you see a return to matriarchy? Well, let me say at the beginning that I am not advocating a return to the matriarchy from where we began as a human race. What I feel is being born is... A, a way of being that is the child of the sacred marriage, the marriage between the divine masculine and the divine feminine. I believe that this patriarchal adventure that we've been on, terrible and extremely dangerous, though it now appears to be, has also brought us certain very important gifts. It's brought us the gift of the transcendent breakthrough of the axial age. It's brought us the evolution of an extraordinary and miraculous way of knowing the universe that is science. It's brought us tremendous capacities in technological power. Its problem is that it's deranged and psychotic. But that derangement and that psychosis can be healed and must be healed by a return and restoration of the full beauty and splendor and magnificence and ferocity and clarity and revelation of the divine feminine both in her light and dark aspects both as the tender sublime bliss presence of the light that is manifesting everything that is birthing everything and as the tremendous processes of evolution that happen to create the creation and happen within the creation these ferocious processes of death and rebirth that are the province of the dark feminine, the natural, wild, dark feminine. 
And when you merge the great wisdom of the father with the great wisdom of the mother, when you experience your father as the transcendent Godhead and your mother as the embodied Godhead, as the whole creation and everything that lives in it and as all the processes of the creation, when that happens within you, you're born as a different kind of human being. You're born at once divine and completely human. You're incarnate, you're embodied. And from that consciousness, which is at once one with your deathless transcendent origin and absolutely alive in every moment and connected with divine tenderness and sensuality to every living thing, from that consciousness, all forms of radical creativity flow, forms of understanding of economics, forms of understanding of politics, forms of understanding of true nature of the arts, the true purpose of the arts, new forms of scientific understanding also will be born from this consciousness because there are whole realms that can only be explored by science when science accepts the foundation of consciousness as the reality of everything. And once that's been accepted by living experience by scientists, God knows what discoveries can await humanity to be able to heal even the terrible wounds that we've inflicted on our environment or the appalling diseases that we've created through our greed and exploitation of nature. So we're on the threshold of a whole set of unbelievable possibilities through this sacred marriage. What this restoration of the feminine must mean, and let's look at it practically now, is that all of the ways in which we're acting in the world have to change. There needs to be an equal representation of women in every political assembly. There needs to be a radical look at the destruction of the sacred feminine and all of the religions and a fundamental apology to the feminine and to women for the terrible ways in which women have been treated and continue to be treated and the terrible ways in which women's bodies have been policed in all of the religions. That has to happen and that will happen from this new consciousness. Then there has to be a new way of doing business because when you bring into the deranged masculine of business the transfiguring feminine, then the real masculine and the real feminine come together in creating a new vision of enlightened business. There must be profit and there must be growth, but it must be sustainable and it must be in harmony with larger ethical concerns and a larger understanding of the interconnectedness of everything. This is the only way in which we can have sustainability. And you can see how a consciousness that is embodied and divine can transform the arts, the sciences, politics, everything. But the most important thing is that this consciousness should be born. And then its being born will guide us in the most extraordinary ways to invent organic, holistic possibilities that can help us overcome and survive what is going to be the most dangerous passage of our history, 
what already is the most dangerous passage of our history, but is only beginning to reveal the full horror and intensity of what we now have to face. Would you expand on what you mean by that, the dangerous passage in our history? Well, there are scientists and they're reputable scientists who believe we've already gone far past the point of no return as far as the environment is concerned. When you consider that we are now registering the carbon emissions of 40 years ago because it takes 40 years for them to seep into the atmosphere completely and to start working on the whole Gaia system, then you have to consider that we still have to, even if we stop everything, even if we follow the regulations that have been created in the Paris Accord, we still have to face all of the emissions of the last 40 years, which has been a massive orgy of consumption. So we are in great danger, whatever we do at this moment, first point. And the second point is that some scientists believe that the global warming process is going to release and is already releasing so much methane gas, which is so much more powerful. I think it's 40 times more powerful than CO2, so so much more dangerous. And that the release of this methane gas almost certainly ensures extinction soon. And these scientists are saying that this could happen within the next 15 and 40 years. This is not a joke. This is not something that we could postpone. This is something that potentially is staring at our face. My own position isn't as drastic as that. I believe that we still have a very, very small window, which we need to go through with great calm, but with great decisiveness. I believe that we will go through a massive collapse of this culture, and there will be terrible suffering and massive death and great disaster, but that remnants will survive, and that it's very important that we birth the divine human in sacred activism now to install, if you like, in the DNA of those remnants the forms of the new that will need to be lived for the new humanity that emerges from this chaos, shattered and traumatized, but also inspired. Our job is to provide that inspiration so that it will be there when it is so needed it will be needed like oxygen so that's how I live my life to try and model as far as I can with all my flaws and follies and shadows I want to try and model what it is to be a humble divine human being in sacred activist service so that new language can be learned by as many people as possible in their own unique ways so that the grammar of that language will be available to those who come after the great shattering that is coming. Well, I really appreciate your truth-telling and as um, overwhelming as it is that we are going through the sixth mass extinction, losing species and 
forest and every ecosystem is under attack at this moment. Um, I think it's extremely important to not leave this out of the narrative of what's going on, even if it seems so big and daunting. And I would really like if we could just share a few tangible sacred activist practices, how we can start to rigorously practice sacred activism amidst all this, you know, the chaos of climate disruption so that we can model this for generations to come? Well, let me answer in a general sense at the end of our talk. To become a sacred activist is not rocket science. It's simply bringing together five forms of service in the core of your life. And I'm sure that in many ways, many of you are already doing parts of all of this service, but being conscious of these five forms will help you so much. The first form of service is service of the divine through praise and thanksgiving and gratitude and prayer and meditation. The divine doesn't need your praise and gratitude. You need to be in that relationship so that the divine can guide you and fill you with wisdom and joy and purpose and clarity and strength. The second kind of service is really service to yourself, realizing that you are now in training, evolutionary training, for a huge adventure. And this means five kinds of practice, cool practices that calm you down. And these are breathing practices, practices of saying the name in the heart, practices of meditation that can initiate you into your essential great peace and then heart practices it's a heart practices that keep your passionate mother heart alive and juicy and vibrant prayer practice that enables you to intercede at deep levels for others to pray for the healing of others on every level Real physical practice that enables the energies of your body to taste their divine origin and shadow work. The third kind of service is service to everyone in your life and everyone around you and all the animals around you to realize that you are here to be an agent of love and compassion and justice and to make a commitment to really represent that in the way in which you treat everyone, in the way in which you honor animals, and in the way in which you act in all the circumstances as far as possible of your life. And the fourth service is really turning up in your local community and turning up with a global heart and global perspective, realizing that you're being called not to necessarily be go out to Kolkata and become Mother Teresa, but to turn up in your local community, which will reflect all of the problems of the world, and start creating what I call a network of grace, a group of between six and 15 people who meet together to pray together to speak about what's happening, to speak about what needs to be done in the local community, and then to start acting to see that certain issues get addressed, issues that are chosen because they really mean something to the people in the group. This is the way in which you can 
bring a small community together to be infused by, to be inspired by, to be helped by, to be supported by. And the fifth kind of service is really trying to make your sexual, emotional, political, social, and economic choices all reflect your fundamental ideals and conscience so that you truly make your life congruent with your ideals. If you bring these five kinds of service together in the core of your life, you'll experience a wholly new level of joy, a wholly new level of meaning, and a wholly new level of power. And if you want to go deeper into this map that I'm offering, I would just humbly ask you to read the book that has launched the sacred activism movement all over the world. It's The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism. I wrote it five years ago, and in these five years, it's gotten all over the world and seems to be helping a lot of people get clear about the situation, but also about the tools that are needed, the simple but very powerful tools that are needed to help us all become grounded and strong and passionate enough to do the great work that we're all called to do. So it's my attempt to offer real practical guidance and I would love to beg you if anything that I've said has inspired you to turn to that book and to truly, truly study it because it's the distillation of my whole lifetime's work and the testimonies of the mystics of all the traditions and also the experience of the great sacred activists such as Gandhi and Desmond Tutu and His Holiness the Dalai Lama who have really given us the keys to how we now can claim our direct connection with the divine, claim the truth of this crisis that is this potential birthing ground of a new humanity and be part of that new humanity humbly but with great faith and great commitment. Thank you, Andrew, so much for this banquet of wisdom and all your invaluable work in delivering a vision for our times and for ages yet to come. My very great pleasure. Thank you so much for your beautiful, serious questions. Such a privilege to be interviewed by somebody who asks such deep and probing questions. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to Andrew Harvey on Unlearn and Rewild, and I'm Ayana Young. Please visit unlearnandrewild.org to sign up for our new mobilized newswire. And please consider making a donation to keep this volunteer programming on air. Our theme music is by Kate Wolf, and our producer is March Young.